Well, IZF family, if you would grab a Bible nearby and open it to Psalm 85 with me, that's what we'll be considering this morning. Next Sunday, we'll be starting a new series called Rediscovering Jesus, and we're doing that from the Gospel of John. We'll be in seven, seven different sections over the course of those coming weeks, and uh, we've decided to take a break before getting into that new series to look at the Psalms in light of our current situation, but I'm really excited for us to consider who the real Jesus is um, and what he means for us today in that series. So we've been adjusting to a new normal, obviously, in these times, and it seems like you're tracking with the news and trajectories that things may get worse in these coming weeks, and we're still then perhaps on the front end of this pandemic, at least in America, and yet people are already beginning to write about what might happen on the other side of this. So I've already read several articles um, of people writing about what's going to change nationally and even internationally as a result of all of this, uh, but we really can't know exactly what's going to happen. But here's one thing we do know. Uh, what we will need after all of this is the same thing we needed before, and we have an opportunity right now to seek it. And what this is, is we want to see individual people that we know and love and people that we don't know. And we want to see communities filled with real joy, real peace, and real flourishing. And we want this to flow from restored relationships with God and thriving relationships with God. So in a word, what we want is revival. Now, true revival is God-given, God-centered, and it's a surge of spiritual renewal. So it's not anything we can schedule. We can't pick a date, you know, Wednesday night, plan a meeting, call it a revival, and expect anything to happen. That's not how it works. We can't manipulate things. This is something that God alone can do. Revival happens when God does over the course of maybe a few months what he typically does over the course of a decade or more. So it's like those racing games like Mario Kart. So for you kids and youth and some adults, I love this game, love playing it with my boys. Um, it's like when you're in the race and your character Yoshi or your character of choice goes over one of those speed pads and gets the super boost of speed and things surge forward. That's what revival is like. The Lord has ordinary ways of working that are supernatural. Um, and then he also surges things forward at times doing what he would typically do over the course of years, over the course of just a number of days. So true revival is a surge of spiritual renewal. It happens when God re-energizes his people with spiritual vibrancy, and he brings many more people to know and follow Jesus. And here's why now is a, is a really important time for us to seek this. Uh, we are in the midst of a widespread upheaval uh, a lot is going to change in our lives and across our nation and other nations. Um, some of that will be really hard. Some of that will probably be for the good um, because many things do need to change, but things won't be the same. But already before this time of upheaval, we've seen a lot of nominal Christianity in America. Uh, we've seen widespread spiritual apathy among professing Christians. We've seen huge swaths of unbelief over our land and the globe, uh, it, often in places that were marked by spiritual vibrancy. And so God himself, in all of his kindness and who he really is in Jesus, has been pushed out of sight and out of view. 
And times of global upheaval can lead to times of global awakening. Times of great suffering can lead to times of spiritual awakening. And so God's done that many times before. He, he seems to love to do that kind of thing. And he has given us Psalm 85 in order to help us know how to pray for this. Uh, 80, Psalm 85 exists to invite us to seek him for spiritual renewal and revival. For each of us individually listening, for us as a church and for other churches and for communities and for the world, this is for us to seek renewal and revival. So let's read this psalm together and then walk through it. So Psalm 85, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Well, this psalm answers three questions about true revival. Why do we need it? What is it like? And how do we get it? So let's walk through this. First, why do we need it? Let's answer this first by seeing why Israel, the people of God who were around at the time of this psalm, why they needed it. So the first three verses is recount uh, Israel's past experience of revival. And then in verses four to six, they ask God to do it again because they need it to happen again. And so that's often how this works. God brings renewal and then we drift from him and move into spiritual apathy. And then he brings fresh revival because we are in need of it again. So here's what happened in Israel's past. You can look at verse one with me. They they say, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So in the past, they were in a season of rebellion and spiritual apathy, but then the Lord forgave their sins. He removed his wrath from them. They received this verdict of no condemnation. But now in verses 4 to 6, we see that they've drifted from him again. They've squandered his grace. They need renewal again. So they turn to God in verse 4. And notice the word again here. He says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. In verse 6, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? So praying for revival isn't complicated. That's the heart of it. We've seen God bring renewal to us personally or to our church or to our communities or to other lands, and we ask for him to do it again. 
Uh, I think God's greatest revival came right after Jesus' resurrection. Acts chapter 2 tells the story about the day of Pentecost, and here's what happened. God's people, there's 120 of them gathered together in Jerusalem. They were praying for God to send his spirit, to pour out his power and bring renewal. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up in front of a crowd of people, and he told the story of Jesus. He let them know what happened to Jesus, what God's done. Jesus is perfect life and his death in our place for our sins and then his resurrection and Peter talks about how Jesus was exalted in his resurrection and he's now the Lord and Christ which means the king the promised king over all things now and then for people he called on people to respond to King Jesus with faith and repentance to trust in this Jesus to follow him to turn away from their sins and trust in him and when they do that the Lord would forgive their sins He'd be pouring out his spirit on them and give them renewal. And on that day, 3,000 people did that. Uh, it says that they, were, they heard God's word and they were baptized. So 3,000 people turn to Jesus on the spot. God did that. And listen to the description of the church at the time. The end of Acts chapter 2, it says this, those who received his word were baptized, because that's what we do, when we receive the word of God, we, we believe in the gospel, we receive forgiveness, and we're baptized as a way of identifying ourselves with Jesus and his church. It was kind of the, the New Testament church membership process. They're baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So these people believe in Jesus, they're baptized and added to the church. And then they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And then it goes on to say they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see them devoted to the gospel, the apostles' teaching, which is a teaching about Jesus in light of the Old Testament. They're devoting themselves to each other in community, and then they're multiplying. God is adding day after day to their number. In other words, worship, community, and mission. Three words that we care deeply about here. So the church is multiplying. It started with 3,000 people, grew day by day. Very quickly, it was 5,000 and more. And then the gospel began spreading outward from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth from there. Many revivals were starting all over the place. And God has done this throughout the centuries. So here's just a couple more examples. We call what God did in Europe in the 1500s the Reformation, and it was a revival. God's people rediscovered the gospel of grace, and they were freshly invigorated by it. Christians were renewed and energized. Many who thought they knew God were part of the church institution at the time, realized they did not know the gospel, that God rescues sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they believed and their, their hearts were liberated. And many people who had no interest in Jesus also started to come to him. In the 1700s, there was a, a spiritual decline across Europe again in the colonies, and many of the people were members of churches, but they didn't actually know the gospel and the true God. Then a few pastors started preaching two doctrines. George Whitfield emphasizes he preached two doctrines all the time. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is to be declared righteous by God by faith alone, on terms of grace, because of Jesus' death for us, not because of anything good we've done. He preached that doctrine, and he preached the doctrine of the new birth, which means we must be born again to enter the kingdom, as Jesus put it. We have to have the Spirit give us a new heart, a complete transformed affections. 
um, in our hearts. Those two doctrines were preached, and many Christians were re-energized by this. There were crowds of thousands of people coming to hear this message and people getting their lives back and being renewed and being set free from sinful habits and patterns by God's grace. And in the colonies, this happened as well. And there was one pastor named Jonathan Edwards who saw this happening in his town. He found out this was happening all over the place at the same time when people didn't even know about it. And so he wrote about what happened. And you can read about this in a book called Jonathan Edwards on Revival. I commend that to you. It's such a great book. It includes several of his short works describing what happened. And here's how he, he put it in his town. He said, When God in so remarkable a manner took the work in his own hands, there was as much done in a day or two as at ordinary times with all the endeavors that men can use and with such a blessing as we commonly have is done in a year. In other words, He's saying, we're doing the work, God's typically blessing over the course of a year, and then all of a sudden, in a day or two, Edward saw the same amount of work happening um, when God decided to do this. He described how several people were becoming Christians in the town on a daily basis. He said nearly everybody in the town was concerned with the eternal realities and getting right with God and knowing Him. He said their Sunday gathering was filled with eagerness that people were crying, some people with tears of joy, some people with tears of sorrow for their own sin and confession, some, some for tears of concern for their lost friends and neighbors. He talked about how a four-year-old was thrilled to come to the gathering on Sunday because she wanted to hear, as he put it, Jonathan Edwards preach. She wanted to hear the sermon. And this is needed again in our time. J.I. Packer uh, wrote a number of years ago that there was no concern closer to his heart and he wrote this, without revival the church in the church, without revival in the church, there is really no hope for the Western world at all. So some of you may feel this need. Maybe you have been feeling lately a plateau in your growth, Christ. Maybe you've been drifting from the Lord. Maybe you feel like you've been locked into sinful habits and patterns. Uh, maybe this recent uh, pandemic and the shift in your life patterns have gotten you locked into some kind of new sin, maybe outbursts of anger in the home or lust engaging on the computer. Uh, maybe you feel like you've already rejected God's grace when he's brought you back again and again, and you feel like uh, he's had enough with you. There's no grace left. Maybe you feel like, uh, okay, maybe he forgives you in some sense, but he doesn't like you and you're benched for the rest of your life. Or maybe uh, you're a new Christian and you do feel the joy and the thrill of knowing Jesus and seeing how all of reality is a gift from him uh, and his grace. And one of your great disappointments in becoming a Christian is looking around at other Christians and seeing just how apathetic some of them feel and how some of them are just kind of coasting and just as excited about the things that don't matter as much as you were before you came to know Christ. And so as we look out in the world, we see West, the Western culture kind of withering spiritually and morally in so many other places in the world under spiritual darkness. And so for all of us, here's what Psalm 85 shows us. It shows us that God can bring revival again. God has given us this psalm so that we would know he wants to do this and that we'd ask him for it. He's given us the words to pray. Um, even for those of us who have squandered his grace. That's the story of those in this psalm. This isn't asking for one new revival. This is asking for them 
to get another revival, for God to show grace again because they've squandered his grace in the past. So what a gift to be able to come to this God who has endless mercy and ask him to do it again. So we need revival. Now second, what does it look like? The second half of the psalm shows us, and there's, here's three marks of true revival. There's more here, but here's three that we see prominent. First, joy. A God-centered, real joy. Look again at verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. So the result of revival is that people will rejoice in God. And so this is a joy that goes beyond a short-lived joy uh, that we get from so much in life. This is a deep joy and a stable joy. It's a joy that can endure even in the midst of great sorrow that many of us may be experiencing in these coming weeks. And, it be, and the reason why this is a deep and stable one is because it's a joy in God. Do you see that? Our joy is God-centered because it's a result of seeing God himself. This psalmist says, revive us that we may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love. This comes from not just receiving various blessings from God, but from seeing his steadfast love, his undying love, his unfailing love for us, sinners that we are. So this happens in revival. God shows his love to us, and maybe what was an abstract reality that we studied and thought about and kind of knew at one level uh, we're in, we encounter the real God again. It gets pressed into our mind and heart in a new way. Uh, we, we move from li- moving beyond a season of life where we're kind of, yeah, abstractly considering ourselves sinners. Yeah, we know we have a sin, but we can't really think of any recently. We move beyond that, uh, which creates kind of an abstract idea of God's love, to a real concrete experience of God's love. Because we know we are real concrete sinners that have real concrete actions that are offensive to him. And he has so much mercy for us when we come to him for fresh grace. So it becomes real again. Second, it's marked by transformed lives. So people are freshly committed to following Jesus with their whole life. Uh, We we begin to realize that following Jesus, being a Christian is not just receiving Jesus as a savior, but also coming to him as our king. We, We have to have him as both of those, as savior and Lord, or we don't really have him at all. We see this in this next statement in verse 8. I love this. He will speak peace to his people. Isn't that a great line? But then listen to what he says next. To his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So God's grace is meant to forgive sin, but it doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't give us a license to keep going in sin. In fact, his grace is meant to transform us and to transform our lives. So here's the progression. In this psalm, God shows us his steadfast love, and then we receive that love, rest in his forgiveness, and that love itself transforms us by the power of the Spirit to live for his sake, to become like him. You know, when God shows us his love, we love him back. And Jesus said, if we love him, we obey his commands. So there's a natural progression between God showing love to people and us truly receiving that and then being transformed to reflect his love to others. So the mark of revival is not perfect obedience, but it is real obedience. Uh, true growth is marked by ongoing repentance for our ongoing sins and also increasing obedience. So in revival, we get back to the foundation, uh, real repentance and faith. And this kind of time of upheaval in life can be so helpful for all of us to just step back and think, 
how do I get back to the essentials and the main things? Uh, how can my life get less complicated and for me to walk in repentance and faith moment by moment for the Lord? The third mark is universal flourishing. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. So steadfast love, faithfulness, and righteousness. Uh, this is who God is. These are words regularly used in the Old Testament to refer to the heart of God. He is a God of undying love, of faithfulness to his promises. He is righteous. He, he always acts in accord with his nature and does what is right. He is the source of all that is right and good. And we see these coming together here. And we see this most clearly coming together in Jesus. John 1 says that in Jesus we see the display of who God is, and we see him as full of grace and truth, um, of faithfulness and righteousness and God's love. And we see that when Jesus lays down his life for us, and we see that in the way that he gives us grace, and through his death he secured our peace. And that's the result of revival, peace. And this peace is one of the great, greatest words in the Old Testament. Its Hebrew word is shalom referring to this universal joy and flourishing and harmony. So revival comes from God speaking peace to the world. He calms us down. Uh, deeply in our souls, he gives us rest. He restores us to himself, which leads to a restoration of relationships with others. So last question, briefly now, how do we get it? How do we experience this revival? First, we pray. Right? We cannot make this happen. Uh, God has to give this. And so we ask him for it. And that's what this psalm is. It's a prayer for revival. So let's pray together as a church family. I encourage you to, um, if you haven't already been able to have a normal, regular rhythm of time alone with God, where you're reading his word, hearing from him, and praying to him, I urge you to make that a high priority, a first priority in your life. And in that time, whether you're just beginning that afresh or you've been doing that for years, let's include this kind of prayer. I know some of you already do, but let's pray for revival. Let's just pray through Psalm 85 together. I encourage you to do this as families. This time of social upheaval and change in schedules and um, quarantine and all of this, this really helps us as those who, who live with other people as families to get a reset, to get time together. So I encourage you to make efforts to gather as a family, to hear God's word and pray, and I encourage you to include this prayer for revival and renewal as part of it. Pray this with your small groups um, over your Zoom meetings right now. Um, pray this when we gather as a church family over Zoom on Tuesday mornings and Thursday nights right now. Let's pray for God to bring revival to us individually and as a church and other churches in the area and globally. Uh, let's pray this when we gather as ministry teams, you know, elders, staff, deacons, music team, women's ministry, any teams you're a part of. Pray for revival. Pray in concentric circles. You know, start with yourself and move outward from there. Pray for your family and for our church family and for our area and for our nation and for the world. Second, we wait for with joyful expect, expectancy. So we pray and then we wait. Verses 8 and 9 are a pause. So right after the prayer of verses 4 to 6 that says, God, do it again, there's a pause. And it says, let me hear what the Lord God will speak. And then this note of confidence, for he will speak 
peace to his people. Do you see that? So we pray and then we pause and wait, confident that he will do this in his own time. But there's a waiting here with expectancy. And so we want him to do this. And you know, one of the best ways to get this sense of expectancy for revival is to learn about past revivals. I mentioned some of them earlier um, in our time here. So I encourage you to get a hold of the book, A God-Sized Vision. It's by Colin Hansen and John Woodbridge. This book recounts a number of stories from the Bible and church history when revivals and renewals came. And this, if you have not been exposed to what God has done, this can change your view of reality. It can change the lens through which you see the world and how it can be. It will replace our short-term, small, and maybe overly pessimistic lens that's reinforced by news feeds all the time, and it will replace it with a longer-term, God-centered, hopeful lens. And here's what they wrote in the book. They acknowledge that we should celebrate and thank God for his ordinary ways of working, which are supernatural as, they, as far as they go. But then they add this, we submit that many Christians have grown so content with the ordinary that they don't bother asking God for anything more. Few of us are tempted today to dream too big. Rather, our vision shrinks to the size of our limited experience. I found that's true of me, and so this book has helped me get an expanded vision um, for what God can do and loves to do and what we can ask him to do. Third, let's get our attention on God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and his steadfast love for us. This psalm says that true revival comes when God shows his steadfast love. So throughout history, true revival comes with a rediscovery of the gospel. One reason why we're going to be looking at rediscovering Jesus from the Gospel of John in these next weeks, because we want to know the real Jesus and have a fresh experience of the presence of God. And so that's what this psalm leads us to do. And then finally, um, so we pray, we wait expectantly, we get our attention on God, and then fourth, let's get creative with this. You know, the psalmist here didn't just pray by himself. He put the prayer down into poetry. And then he didn't even do that just for his own use. He, he gave that to other people so that they could join in in this prayer and song. And we still have this today. And so revival often comes along the lines of creativity. You can see this throughout church history. Um, you know, it spread when the early Christians started taking the gospel to new places and gathering people to, to speak to them the message of Jesus. It spread when Martin Luther used the printing press to get uh, the, a German translation of the Bible into people's hands and then to spread uh, the gospel that way. It happened when George Whitfield started going outside of buildings and into fields to gather crowds to speak the good news of Jesus. In these revivals, there was often a surge of new songwriting that would happen to put Christ and his grace fresh to our, to our lips to sing. There was also new ways of getting the gospel and the Bible out to people. So this situation we're in, this pandemic, can be a time for us all to just rethink how we do things. Rethink how you order your time, what you pray for, how you have time together as families, how you engage with your neighbors, how you pray for the nations. So let's just step back to the essentials. You know, our, our purpose as a church uh, isn't changing because it's from God's word, right? Our purpose is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus who are a community of worshipers on mission. And so the way that we do that right now is going to look a bit different and in some ways not ideal. But this situation can cause each of us individually, us as a church, us as a society, to just rethink how to do things well. 
this upheaval can be good for us. So why don't we pray together, and then we'll have a moment for, or a few minutes for a creative way of fellowshipping together like last week. So um, please join your hearts and minds together with me. Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 85 and that you gave it to us as an invitation to ask you for what you alone can do. And so we pray now that you would do this, that you would revive us again. We thank you for the renewal that you've brought to us through Jesus, beginning on that day of Pentecost where the Spirit was poured out and has been surging through the world and we're still living in the wake of that renewal. Thank you for the renewal you've brought so many of us even recently and we pray for more. We pray that you would wake us up from spiritual apathy, if that's where we are. We pray that renewal would spread to our communities. We pray that we would be, you would give us fresh creativity and prompting by your spirit to share the gospel with people and pray for you to do what you alone can do. We pray that you get your word and the Bibles in people's hands that don't have it, cause people to want to open it right now and read about your love in Christ. And we pray that we would be expectant to see you work and eager to rejoice in you pray this in Jesus' name. Well, how about for the next few minutes, you identify, like last week, one person or family or several people from our church family to encourage and connect with over text or email or give them a call right now or a voice call um, or video, and identify one person um, who does not yet know Jesus and reach out to them to encourage them and ask them how they're doing, uh, and check in with them, and connect with them uh, as friendship as well. So for, for with, uh, with that uh, plan going forward, let's receive a benediction from God's Word. Now may the love of God our Father, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Love you, can't wait to see you again uh, next time, and I look forward to being uh, with you all on this journey through the next this next week in the Bible reading plan we're going to have for Passion Week.